Okay, well, hi, everybody. We're back with Dorothy's Place after an extended uh, intermission. Not sure what happened there, but we're back. Pete and I are back. Pete, how are you? So glad to be here, Elias. <laughs> glad to be back. Hello, listeners. All right. And we're going to be talking to a great guy today, Jim Walker, in just a second, uh, of an organization called BigCar.org. Uh, one of the most amazing surrealist social practice uh, art groups in the country. In the meanwhile, um, lots going on. We usually start with a book or an organization we've been thinking about. Um, you got something, Pete? I have a, I, I, I don't know if I've mentioned him before on the podcast. So if I did, okay. Okay. I'm not sorry because Nothing. it's worth listening to of again. Course. Yes. But I will acknowledge that I might have said it before, but uh, it's been a long time. So uh, I will talk about him again. Sure. Um, I've been very taken by this Jesuit priest named Father James F. Keenan. Um, he is a wonderful moral theologian. He's in the Francis side of the church, mm -hmm. um, close to Francis. Um, and he's a social, uh, he's, he's the morality of social arrangements, you know, uh, uh, social theory and morality and theology. Huh. And he just has these wonderful uh, rethinking of different common things we hear um, in, the, in the church. Um, and could I share a few of them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Elias? Yeah. Okay, so I'll share one which is he has this whole riff. You can look him up. He's written a bunch of books. He writes essays all the time in America Magazine and Commonweal and the like. But, um, and he's a total hidden gem because I think he's not, uh, mm -hmm. he's not promoting himself enough. Um, but I think he might be one of the best priests out there. Um, he, uh, he, he, he has this whole riff on what makes, uh, for the, the non-Catholics listening, it's um, you're welcome to this belief too, but it was very <laughs> Catholic focused. He is a priest after all. Right. He says, what makes Catholics special among all the different uh, sects? And he said, he thinks that the Catholics have a unique emphasis on mercy in mm. their theology. Mm. And we, we hear mercy all the time. I remember growing up the Catholic church and, and I, you know, the mother of mercy, angel of mercy, God, give yeah, us your yeah. mercy. What does mercy mean? And he has this wonderful riff about how mercy means the willingness to enter into the chaos of another. And I think that's such a wonderful <clears throat> idea. And in that riff, he talks about how we are so often taught that the most si the sins that you're supposed to watch out for are sins from weakness. You know, I shouldn't have gambled, but I gambled. I shouldn't have lusted, but I lusted. I shouldn't have drank, but I drank. Uh, yeah. um, and that's what we're taught. You know, sin is, is all of the addictions you have. Sin is all of the times when you weren't your best self. But he says, that's part of it. But the much bigger part are sins from strength and comfort. Yeah. Um, you were doing fine, not drinking, not gambling, not lusting, not wasting your money, and you were sitting in your home. And meanwhile, there were people who needed you to enter into the chaos of them. Right. You were, uh, he talks about, uh, I think his name is Albert Spear, the Nazi uh, oh, yeah, architect. architect. Yeah. He says, we're all taught, 
we're all taught about Hitler, but we're not taught about this Nazi architect who didn't really like Hitler, but kind of stayed neutral when the Nazi ascended. And yeah, they said, yeah, oh, yeah. we need to hire your firm to do architecture for yeah. the camps and for the trains. <clears throat> and he said, I don't really like your ideology, but I'm going to go do my job yep, yep. Um, because I need to feed my family and keep my upper middle class life. And he says, that's the guy we should teach the high school kids about because that's most of us. Most of us are that's not kind of crazy, going to be crazy dictators. That's good. That's <laughs> most good. of us are going to be spear. Right. Uh, we have lost our ability to have mercy. We have, and then this is his great sin, sins of the failure to bother to love. Mm -hmm. um, mercy mm -hmm. is the opposite of failing to bother to love. Mercy is about bothering to love by entering into the chasm. Wow, wow, it's all great. these other great riffs, but. <clears throat> Uh, I know we do a lot of mix and match between theology and like urbanism and politics, but I thought yep. let's just do a pure uh, unadulterated theology and morality for my Albert Speer, the architect that yeah. we ought to remember better. Yeah. yeah. He wrote a book, you know, he wrote a, a memoir, I believe. And he got a certain kind of, he had notoriety. I guess he also got a certain amount of almost popularity. Like, well, you know, he was like Lenny Riefenstahl, you know, the documentary filmmaker. Yes. So, <laughs> Triumph of the Will. Isn't it a great movie? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <Is it> again? <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah. That. you know, my uh, somewhat related, um, my book, um, it's actually two volumes by a Nobel Prize winner that um, I discovered a little bit later along through the recommendation of a friend. And that is Isaac Bashevis Singer. And he wrote a million short stories. Um, but he also has a collection of stories that are sort of, sort of autobiographical and yet um, not quite. And it has to do with his uh, childhood growing up. Um, I don't think it was quite in the shtetl. It was actually in Warsaw, in the city of Warsaw. This is back in the, I guess, in the turn of the century, teens and 20s. His father was a rabbi. And the collection of stories is called In My Father's Court. And the okay. court is actually the rabbinical court. And this rabbinical court amounts to no more than the living room of their house, of this very modest house in Warsaw, where people were constantly dropping in with all kinds of crazy marital, quasi-legal, and psychological problems for his rabbi father to solve. And he describes the, uh, the scene there where he was a little boy um, as follows. It's called the Beth Dean. The Beth Dean is Hebrew for uh, the court, the rabbinical court. <clears throat> it was a kind of blend of a court of law, a synagogue, a house of study, and if you will, psycho psychoanalyst office where people of troubled spirit could come to unburden themselves. That such a mixture was not only feasible but necessary was proved by the continued existence of the Beth Den over many generations. It is my firmest conviction that the court of the future will be based on the Beth Den, provided the world goes morally forward instead of backwards. Though the Beth Den is, a rap is rapidly disappearing, I believe it will be reinstated and evolve into a universal institution. The concept behind it is that there can be no justice without godliness, and that the best judgment is one accepted by all the litigants with goodwill and trust in divine power. The opposite of the Beth Den are all institutions that employ force, whether of the right or of the left. And then finally he says, 
I think at times uh, the Beth Den is an infinitesimal example of the celestial counsel of mercy, God's judgment, which the Jews regard as absolute mercy. Wow. Is that great? That's right on top of your, your point. Oh my I'm, gosh, it's a mercy themed. <laughs> yes, we are, we are. And, and, and yet what I'm not getting is the wonderful human comedy of the scenes here with his rabbinical father, who's a very lofty sort of spiritual head in the clouds kind of guy. And the mom, who's this wonderful kind of Jewish rationalist, who's always sort of questioning why we're doing things. Um, and, and sometimes there's, there are these funny little collisions as when um, a poor woman comes in with two dead geese and she's complaining to the rabbi that somehow they must be haunted or, or have spirits because when you throw one dead goose against the other, it squawks. And so there's this sort of bizarre scene where the woman is showing that there must be spirits here uh, because these dead animals are talking and the father and the mother are looking at each other in sort of confusion. The mother finally realizes that all she needs to do is reach inside each goose and pull out the windpipe. Oh, wow. Oh, because the windpipe of each goose and stops the squawking. And then here's the end of the story. Mother went back to the kitchen. I remained with my father. Suddenly he began to speak to me as though I were an adult. Your mother takes after your grandfather, the rabbi of Bilgeray. He's a great scholar, but a cold-blooded rationalist. People warned me before our betrothal. And then father threw up his hands as if to say, it's too late now to call off the wedding. <laughs> wow, 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 wow. It's a wonderful story. It's, and and there, there are all kinds of wonderful stories. There's a wonderful story about a Polish washerwoman, a Gentile woman. She is very elderly, uh, takes on great labor for very little money. Um, and that at the end, um, Singer says, I believe that um, in, the, in the afterlife, as he puts it, um, <clears throat> the soul passed into those spheres where all holy souls meet, regardless of the roles they played on this earth, in whatever tongue, of whatever creed. I cannot even imagine Eden without this washerwoman. I cannot even conceive of a world where there is no recompense for such effort. Wow. Is that a democratic spirit there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Isaac Savage Singer, in my father's court. In my father's court. Oh, I love that. There's so many... Um, Elias, you're so amazing at finding these. Um, ah, you know, it's, it's, it seems like all of the discourse these days uh, is just everyone reading the same five books <laughs> <You're right. laughs> that just got there, like New oh, York treasures. There's lots essay, of and you find all the hidden treasures. Oh, there's tons. There's tons. Yes. How did you find out about him? Are you reading through a, the Nobel Prizes? I, I, I vaguely heard of the guy, never read him. But a friend of mine, uh, the essayist Joseph Epstein, some years ago said, you know, you really, you really need to read this guy. He's, he's a very old-fashioned writer. He's, he's out of Chekhov, you know, out of that line, um, and Maupassant and so on. He's not a modernist. He's not trying to do bizarre, tricky things with language. Um, he's not magical realism. Um, he's, he's out of Tolstoy and Chekhov, and he's about uh, Jewish humanity. Yes. Quite wonderfully. Oh, that's great. Um, well, this is um, a, a wonderful recommendation. Should we move on to Jim? Let's go on to Jim. Great.
Okay, we're talking to Jim Walker, the CEO and founder of Big Car at bigcar.org in Indianapolis. I've uh, been trying to get him on the pod for a while, and it's great fun to connect with this guy. Jim, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing this morning? Good, good. Um, we're going to talk about the kind of work that Big Car does in Indianapolis and has gotten some amazing recognition for. Um, and actually, I was going to do something a little bit different to start off. Jim has just gotten back from a family vacation in Europe. I've been watching this on Facebook. It looked fantastic. And, and you know, I got the sense that there's a lot of placemaking going on in Europe. Yeah. Tell us, tell us uh, what you saw. So, we ha so uh, one thing that we had the good fortune to do is that there's a direct flight now from Indianapolis to Paris. It's uh, pretty great to be able to just walk in here in our city and then walk out in Paris and not have a bunch of connections or mm -hmm. a bunch of hassles in between. And it's, it's basically a, a, you know, an eight hour flight and a couple hours, an hour on each end taking the train. And one of the things that we really, you know, yeah, you're right. There's a ton of placemaking stuff that we experienced and we stayed in Paris, a, a city named Lille, uh, which is really an inspiring place. It's kind of a mid-sized city in, in Northern France and then we went to to Belgium and we took trains all around and our kids are teenagers and so this was you know here transit mass transit is on its way up but there you know there aren't a ton of experiences here where you can take uh, trains between yes. cities things like that mm -hmm. so that was a good experience for them to to see that and then we would we did a lot of um, we actually combined the work in this trip by visiting a lot of adaptive reuse spaces in, in Europe, um, art spaces that were train stations uh, in Paris. We went to one that was an old hospital um, in Belgium. We went to some former kind of industrial spaces that were converted into uh, art spaces. And this is tied in with the project we have here where we're expanding into an adjacent factory building that's 40,000 square feet. Well, that's the one we received a $3 million grant from Lilly Endowment to do mm -hmm. uh, as part of several other things on this block. So we were able to really get a lot of inspiration from seeing um, some of these places um, that they were really smart about adapting into uh, art and cultural and community spaces there. Cool, cool. Well, I jumped ahead a little bit in, in our logic. Give, give us the, um, the elevator pitch, big car. What is it, what is it exactly you guys do? We're, in a lot of ways, we're, we're an arts-based community development organization at this point in, in, our, in our neighborhood, which is the Garfield Park neighborhood. It's just the south of downtown here, um, south of a neighborhood called Fountain Square that has had a lot of revitalization um, and change over the years. That's the neighborhood where we started in Fountain Square mm -hmm. back in 2004. So by arts-based community development, I just mean it's artists leading uh, a lot of the work in taking a block that was basically half to three quarters vacant when you, when you look at the industrial spaces that we're in and filling those with uh, community and art activities and bringing in artists to live in the houses that were formerly vacant and preserving those, those as affordable housing. So that's a lot of our work is focused on this, this particular block. Uh, where we have, where we own or co-own 16 buildings. Um, wow. Yeah, so that's all on one one block. And uh, it's bordered by I-65, 
on one side. And then the other side is this uh, street called Shelby Street that is the location of the red line, which is our new BRT, uh, bus rapid transit line. So it's, an, it's a very interesting uh, place that we were able to get into before the BRT became a reality hmm. and before some other things have, have started to become a reality. We're really close to the, one of the city's best parks, which is called Garfield Park. Um, one of the city's oldest and, and biggest and most definitely it's its most um, programmed park um, in terms of having an art center and a conservatory and greenhouses and things like that and a, and a performing arts center called the McAllister Center. So that's all here. And then we also do a lot of other placemaking work around the city and around the state. And we do other public artwork. A lot of it, uh, nearly all of that work on the placemaking and on the public art side is engagement based where we ask people from the community to participate in the making of murals or in participation in civic conversations on a plaza, that kind of stuff. Cool. Cool. Pete, jump in. Yeah, that's, this is amazing. And I'd love to hear a bit of the, the story of kind of how you took it from a, a vac uh, you know, a vacant place to a place that was thriving i'd love to hear you know step by step you don't have to go into i'm sure you could talk yeah. for a minute about this or talk for a year about it but um right. uh you know what did you do first then what did you do what were the successes and failures um yeah. what thing really worked what thing did you think was going to work but then you know um let's hear a little bit about that story yeah so we're only a, about four years into this project here um we've been around for 15 so our, we started out as being more of a nomadic organization. We started out in a, in a, and these were in rented or donated spaces. Yeah, just a typical group of Hoosier surrealists, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> just your typical Hoosier surrealists. And we were doing a lot of experimental stuff and just trying to look at gaps in our city and say, okay, well, there's not a spot for this this kind of experimental band or there's not this kind of thing that um, is being, you know, that people can experience in our city. And so we started doing that. And a lot of our work was really with arts audiences and, audi and artists and also people who were, you know, tended to be more adventurous and come to Fountain Square when it was more of a neighborhood that wasn't um, to su super, um, you know, people had, it had negative, <clears throat> had a negative reputation at that point and, and people thought it was dangerous and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So um, the, uh, it, it, we did all that stuff, but what we learned throughout that is that as those neighborhoods became uh, more commercially viable and popular for residents and things like that to move into the artists who didn't own anything um, were one of the people who might be um, not there anymore. And this, this is kind of the moral fable behind yeah. your development, right? This, this is kind of fascinating to me. How yeah. the place making the place keeping. Yeah. Right. So, you, you know, you're thinking, okay, well this, and so then what has happened all over is then the character of that neighborhood changes. It doesn't have the artists anymore or it doesn't have the other small businesses. It's, I, I wouldn't, I'd be very careful to elevate artists above other kinds of neighbors and other kinds of businesses in these kind in these uh, neighborhoods that reach yeah. sort of this peak authenticity, and then they sort of start to fade into something more not as quite as authentic or not as maybe not as interesting mm -hmm. to some people. Other people might say, "Okay, I like this a lot better. It's cleaner. It's it's 
you know, everything is full, everything is, you know, there are more things I recognize, you know, I know what I'm going to get when I go to this kind of a chain or whatever. So I, that, that's just in my view that authenticity is really important and, and having artists in a neighborhood really adds something. Um, but that changes and, and that's just the way it goes. I mean, we're in a, a free market economy, it's capitalism. And so you can't do a lot about that if you, by just making complaining or making, trying to make pass legislation or something, that's nothing, that, that's not gonna work. So what we were able to do down here um, is buy some property hmm. after we had done some work around, uh, we were doing some work on murals a, a company had uh, hired us to do these these engagement-based work murals all around, and that was Lily, uh, the pharmaceutical company that's based here. And so we took the some extra money that came from the work we did, and instead of, um, you know, we and we invested it in this building that we own, and we so we found this building in our neighborhood, sitting here on a side street in this really interesting mixture of residential and industrial and we talked to the owners and they were they just happened to be ready to to part with it and we were able to buy it for forty thousand dollars and then hmm. start to work on it well wow. um, we we it was good timing too because this neighbor this neighborhood um these neighborhoods this is the south side and garfield park and bean creek neighborhoods are, are both they overlap where we are here in the tube factory and they um there, the, the neighborhoods were ready for some investment and for some, some the leaders who lived here and we live here too. My family lives here and several other people who are part of our organization live here or have lived here. And so then we all decided it was, and everybody was really right at the point where it was time to, to start to see some change down here. And, but to do it in a way that was uh, smart and a little more planned um, in terms of, Let's try to minimize displacement of existing residents. Let's include them in the conversation. Let's also get a hold of some property that we can control, that we can keep affordable in the future, and that also own these commercial spaces so that they don't they they don't get out of our control and become um, yeah. something less interesting. <clears throat> Just, just a quick jump back. Jim, give us, for, particularly for people that don't know the city of Indy very well, give us your thumbnail sketch of Indy and then two neighborhoods, first Fountain Square and then Garfield Park. What's the difference? Yeah. So Indianapolis is a, is a one of the things that really defines it is it doesn't have any um, sort of natural border to stop its growth. So... <laughs> Chicago has at least the lake on one side. It can keep yeah. on west and it can keep on going um, sort of south and sort of north, but it, it can't go too far in those directions either because it gets into another state. Yeah. So here, you know, this is in the middle of the state. There are no mountains or rivers or lakes or anything that will stop its growth. I mean, we have the White River that goes through the middle of the city, but that's fine. And so it can, it just keeps on and it, it goes into other counties and it just keeps on expanding or at least it had been so that really left a lot of the uh, center of the city sort of left behind because mm -hmm. it kept being this development sprawling out the other thing about this this is a, we have a unified city county government so in other cities st louis is a good example it's very small city limits or compared to indianapolis 
Hmm. This is the whole, um, the whole, what had been Marion County, or it's still Marion County, but that had been Marion County. Now it's the county and the city all in one. Hmm. So all the further out areas, the tax tax base from those townships goes back and to support the city. So the city had a lot of loss of residents in the center and it's in its uh, public school system struggled and a lot of the same things that you saw in Detroit and St. Louis and Cleveland and cities like that. Mm-hmm. But it was kind of hidden by the fact that there was this unified government. So never, it never went bankrupt. It never had the kind of very, um, you know, like, the story that Cleveland had, the story that Detroit had, the story that St. Louis mm-hmm. had, we've been able to not have that story be out there, but we still had a lot of that same, same kind of vacancy and the same kind of change. And then we were a little bit maybe slower than some cities in terms of people recognizing how much better this, these, in my view, and a lot of people's views, how much better these detached garage houses with alleys and you know, well-built homes, unique um, homes on a city grid are compared to the, you know, suburban houses that popped up in the mm-hmm. 70s, 80s, 90s. So, but that has happened now and it's very, and Fountain Square it has become a neighborhood where a home that might have been given to a person for free because it was such a bad area um, in everybody's opinion, could now be a home that once it gets fixed up is $400,000. So it went, and that happened in a very short window of time, like in in terms of the big picture where, Hmm. you know, they were taking houses that were right on the south edge of the, Indianapolis also has a mile square downtown, which was its old um, boundary. And if you ever come here, you can find your way around because on the, west side of the city is west street and then north is north and and so on but that mile square there were homes that were basically being given away to people for a dollar right on the south edge southeast edge of the mile square and that's where fountain square began or begins and that was an area where virginia avenue comes out from the center of the city heads southeast into fountain square and that was just a devastated road um, that was like a, a highway, basically, coming out of the center of the city. And now that's where you have all these Bluebeard and Milk Tooth, these really awesome internationally famous restaurants that are located there. And they mm-hmm. took over places that used to be a casket company and a car repair shop and turned those into those kind of restaurants. And just all this stuff that was um, vacant lots that were parking lots in where the BMV had its office, you know, for where you go get your driver's license, like all that stuff is now apartments and restaurants mm-hmm. and all that. And, and, but anybody who had any sense could see that that's right by downtown. That's a really nice street. It could be if you did a little bit to it. And then the culture the Indianapolis cultural trail came down there, narrowed that down into two lanes of driving and put in the bike and pedestrian paths on the side of Virginia and brought it to Fountain Square. And then all of a sudden when that happened, then the infill and the restaurants and the bars and the, all the nice things that coffee shops and everything that all just took off. And in just a few years from when it went from this um, sort of desolate road to 
all of a sudden this really great street huh. and it, and it connected it also fixed a gap that was created by the highway because here you also have two loop highway loops basically 465 all the way to the outside and then hacking the city right down the middle is i-65 and 70 i-65 heading south and north and 70 heading east and west and so that just chops downtown off from the first neighborhoods um but the cultural trail literally bridged that gap by making a, a highway bridge nicer and making it so when you cross that bridge, you have a buffer and you're not just standing on a three feet of sidewalk between a railing where you could fall over <laughs> and get smashed by a semi or get hit by a car to your left who's going 55 miles an hour. Mm -hmm. Like that changed into this pleasure walk where you have really beautiful papers and you know, landscaping and and a higher fence on the side, railing on the side. And so that did, that, that really did all help this all along. And that's, so that's where we are now. We have a better connected city because of this cultural trail. And we have um, a nice downtown and this, the neighborhoods that are closest, Fountain Square being one of them, have really become very, very hot neighborhoods where it's very hard to get a home there for under, Two hundred and fifty, three hundred thousand dollars. Where those, there were fifty thousand dollar houses all over the wow. place. Well, wow. now you and guys Garfield are. Park, sorry, Garfield Park is one neighborhood south of Fountain Square, oh, so okay. it's the next neighborhood. But it has another barrier, which is called Raymond Street, and that is like a four lane highway. Wow, it's not an interstate, but it's just this massive road that they put in mainly hmm. I think, to move around industrial trucks and um, to just, just different places that factories and stuff down here. And, and that is a barrier, but the red line and some other things are, are kind of fixing that disconnect too. And, and that's, so we're getting connected back in with Fountain Square and it's all so close. Like it's a mile and a half to Fountain Square from here. It's a mile and a half from Fountain Square to the circle. So, you know, in, in under three miles, you can be to the very center of the city from where we are. Well, yeah. so, so you guys are watching Fountain Square. Big Car maybe is thinking we were a part of this story, but now you're also maybe having some thoughts about the process, right? Is that kind of what I was, what I remember reading? Yeah, definitely. So that when we were, we partnered with a, a, a CDC called Riley Area Development, Community Development Corporation to buy uh, a bunch of houses on this block. And five of those, five of those will be, or we own those separately, Big Car owns those separately. And those are, those are set up to be affordable rental hmm. homes for artists so that we're, we Because you realize this is the missing piece, right? This is the thing that you couldn't control in Fountain Square. Correct. And there was a, a, pro a project in Fountain Square called the Wheeler Arts Center that was a 20 or 15 year, 20 year tax uh, or what, where they get a tax credit for affordable housing. Hmm. And then the, when that came up, the time ended on that, that went market rate. And that happened in another place and over there on Virginia Avenue, an old school. And then so two big buildings that housed a lot of artists and a lot of lower income folks in general turned into market rate housing. So then you're, wow. those, those rental opportunities are gone. So we have a, we have an opportunity here to do 
five of these is rentals that we can control. And then another five are being sold to artists as a, basically a community land trust model hmm. where they're, they're being sold to them. They are getting a deep discount on buying them in exchange for a commitment to both working in the community as artists and to taking part in this uh, long-term affordability by selling the home back to us, back to the land trust um, group to be sold again to another artist at an affordable price. So it'll never get jacked up to a high price mm -hmm. and it'll stay in that affordable realm. So there are 10 houses here and then there are bigger long-term plans to do some more infill development of uh, mixed income or, you know, low end uh, workforce housing on the same block, maybe for artists or maybe for a combination of artists and others. Um, and to, to offer within these, these buildings down here, places for people to start small businesses, to run their small businesses that are creative businesses or are culinary, which is a creative business or are other kinds of community, other kinds of businesses that meet community needs. And those are all things that are going to be happening in that big building I mentioned and also in some new construction that's down here. So it's basically like, hey, how about we get, we have, we have this opportunity, how about we keep control of it mm -hmm. and we work out, we still need to have these things generate income, but we don't have uh, ownership who needs to make money uh, because this is a nonprofit situation. Right. We don't have shareholders or we don't have um, those kinds of demands. I, Jim, you call yourself a, first off, I, I want to say it's very, <laughs> first off, I want to say, sorry, many know thoughts. Peter's thinking. So exciting. <laughs> um, for, uh, you know, I was just talking to Chuck Marone of Strong Towns. Yeah. And he said that in uh, his, his alternative way to do development, instead of big box stores and big office parks and big infrastructure projects, he says you should do incremental development where you ask people about tiny things that would make their life better and we'd be surprised about what would, how much work that does. And, you know, when I hear about, you know, there's this bridge over the highway and, you know, one big development would be like, oh, we need to build a million dollar pedestrian bridge and maybe that's not something you can do right now. But he says, oh, if you add just a bit of make the wall a little higher, make it a little bit more pleasant, pave it in a slightly different way, suddenly you can open up a huge, huge neighborhood and he calls that incremental development. Yeah. And it seems like you're one of these uh, experts at that. You really saw how that happens. Uh, the little things make a big difference. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that we're doing in this building is just is opening a coffee shop in a couple of weeks. Uh, we had one. It, it didn't last too long. It went out of business. And now in our neighborhood, you have to drive. if You want to get a cup of coffee. You can't. It's too far for most people to walk a mile and a half to Found Square to get a cup of coffee. You can't get a croissant. You can't. There's no place here for neighbors to just know they can go walk in there and the other neighbors will be there and they can say hi. Mm -hmm. so we're opening that coffee shop. If somebody else comes along and says, you know what, I'm going to open a dedicated coffee shop in the neighborhood. We, we are not going to be mad. We are doing this small thing here because it's a, it's needed and people have been asking for it and we want it. And that's kind of how a lot of this stuff has worked. It's smaller stuff. It's steps. And, you know, I think that, 
one of the things that Chuck is talking about with that big stuff is that people want to either do the big stuff or nothing because you can spend a lot of time talking about the big stuff. If you do the small stuff, you have to actually do it because you can't. And so a lot of people <laughs> will, like don't really want to do it. They just want to talk about it. They just want to have a lot of meetings and they just want to make a lot of plans. I <laughs> and, people want to pay for and the other thing is it's, and, and this is something that strong houses talk about and it's so true cities and uh, all kinds of, of entities, funders of all kinds love paying for plans and consultants, but they don't want to actually, they, hmm. they don't always pony up the money to actually do something. And it's very, very doable to say, all right, well, let's take this $50,000 that you're going to spend on this plan or this $100,000 that you're going to spend on making a plan and doing all these conversations and just have a conversation, work with the community and actually turn it around and do something with the money. So maybe you spend, yeah. you take 50 and you spend 5,000 on a, a series of conversations and you spend the 45 on doing something. And that's a lesson that I was very, very inspired by the better block model. Oh yeah. When I first heard about this, <clears throat> we were able to bring in some folks from there to help us learn about how that works and do some of those here in our city. And we did two of them on Shelby street right outside of here. And that really helped bring attention to these problems. But in, in our neighborhood, we had three neighborhood associations, one that was defunct, that was Garfield Park East, we had Garfield Park North, and we had Garfield Park South. And the Better Blocks, besides testing these ideas that led to things like, you know, new businesses opening and the red line design and a lot of that stuff, what happened was those three neighborhood associations became one. And hmm, they wow. were working together on the Better Block because they all volunteered to team That's up. That's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and then and then they they said, well, why are we three, and and why is this one over here not even meeting anymore, and not being included in any of the updates, or they didn't <clears throat> on, they weren't being getting the newsletter and stuff, and then everybody said, hey, let's get this together, let's make one entity, and let's make sure everybody knows, and so the people who are east of Shelby Street who are left out aren't left out anymore, and yeah. everybody's together, and it's much stronger, but that was the biggest outcome of that, and people will say, well, you do a better block like that, and all that goes away. What's the long-term outcome? You know, what's the long-term physical change that comes from this? Mm -hmm. It isn't always the next day there's a new business in this thing, or it, that there's new construction that happens, or infrastructure changes right away. That does a lot of times come, but that's the community connection and the realization as a group that all of this stuff doesn't have to be the way it has been. And we don't have to keep on doing things wrong. That's amazing. Um, I, I love that. I'm looking at the better block site right now. And I, I love how it's just like street trees, awnings, bike lanes, yeah. you know, it's things that, you know, <laughs> might cost, you know, $1,000 can get, you know, a few of those things. And then another thousand dollars can get a few more. And it's very doable. Um, one question I wanted to ask you about also was um, you call yourself a social practice artist and a placemaker. And for those who haven't heard those phrases before, I'd love to hear how you define that for yourself when you think about yourself as a social practice artist and a placemaker. What are the, what does those phrases mean to you? Sure. I, I think that with the social practice side of this, which, and, and this is one of the things that's unusual about our organization. We've, there, there have been some people who have studied us um, inter, 
folks internationally have studied us, a woman named uh, Dr. Cara Courage, who's in, in working in London now, has been here and we've been featured in a couple of her, her books. The, that the combination of, of placemaking and social practice art is, is a unique aspect of our work and that the social practice art is really that artists are making, a lot of times artists are making physical objects for the purpose of, of expressing themselves or, or sharing or, you know, sparking uh, something in the, in the audience or the viewer. What our, what social practice work is about in our view is instead of that final product being where you end, the process of connecting with people and working with people and making things happen instead of stuff happen is really what that's all about. So putting on a, a civic conversation, having a, a, a market that we do down here where we bring together all kinds of people who are selling different sort of local products and then bringing together neighbors who connect with each other and, and have these social experiences, social connections. It's a lot of that is organizing and also figuring out how to be a facilitator of people connecting with each other. So there's in social practice art, there's a lot of facilitation and it ha and it's, and it has to be site specific and it has to be community specific. So you can't just take something and just drop it on, um, a neighborhood it has to be really specific to the, that neighborhood and to the people who are there and it has to include them and, and, and be something that they invite you to do and that they, that they, and they have to know you to a degree in most cases. Mm -hmm. And it, it has to be about them instead of about us, yeah. or about me. And so this, a lot of this comes from my, my background. Originally I started out as a journalist in a small town of Greenfield, Indiana, and what well, actually I started in Warsaw, Indiana as an intern. And I started writing when I was 17, when I was in high school. And, um, and so journalism is really about telling other people's stories, but you have to organize that story somehow for people, for the reader. You can't just mm -hmm. give them hand over your, your recording or your notes and say, <laughs> make a story out of this. It's on you. The journalist organizes that story for the reader and but they're really a facilitator of the story that they heard from the, the people that they talked to so that's a lot of, of what social practice art is about and really placemaking has a lot of similarities to that too where our placemaking basically all placemaking is about is about making a place comfortable and it's not making a new place necessarily it's usually not that it's usually adapting an existing place and in where designing if it is a new place designing a place that is very focused on human comfort human interest and making it a, a social space where things like the social practice projects could happen or just places where people can feel like they're at home and they're they they love it there they feel welcome there and they feel respected there and their things aren't overlooked there like they're able to use the restroom. They're able to get something to drink. They're able to be in the shade when it's hot. They're able to be told yes to many of the questions that they might ask instead of no, 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 no. Here are all the rules of all the things you can't do. It's really more about creating a space that is a yes kind of scenario for people. And it's also a welcoming space that's for everybody. And 
and placemaking in my view that moves into placekeeping is really about also about sites site and community specific approaches where if you're going to work in a neighborhood is it do you need to bring in a big um, band from somewhere else that to attract people do you need to do does everything need to come from somewhere else or do you work within the with the strengths and the assets of that community hmm. and recognize those assets and build on the site and its specifics and its community specifics and that's where you really that's your foundation and i think those are the things that sometimes get overlooked where people have a cookie cutter approach to placemaking where and a, and a, and this is also true for public art where you just plop in the same kind of stuff but maybe that's not what is right that place. I notice you say on your site, but placemaking is not making a place pretty. Right. Placemaking is about people showing up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, anytime you have a, a supposed placemaking project that has pictures with no people in it, <laughs> that, that's a good sign that maybe something isn't prioritized correctly. And because the people are the number one ingredient in placemaking, a parking lot, with some shade and chairs and like the stuff that you see with better block dragging out some trees and buckets. You can turn, if, if people want to go there and are going there and you have them together in that place and, and that one is over here and on your, in your other hand, you have a really beautiful place that has all these, this permanent stuff built in and you know, all these features, but no one's there the one that's on the parking lot that has trees and buckets is, is more successful. Yeah. And that, and that's also hard for people who are paying, paying for it to be able to see unless they experience it. And it's one of the challenges with, with city leaders and funders is if they got, they need to get out there to the place and see what it's like. Hmm. And if, hmm. if they're going to fund something, they need to be able to go there and, and, and see a place that's actually working and say, this is what we want. And we want people here. And uh, the plans and the renderings and the designs don't always include the plan for how to have people there, how to make sure people want to go there and what's going to actually happen there. They plan that they show the, the stone bench across from the other stone bench and they show the fountain <laughs> in the middle and they and there and these are all things that can be cut and pasted and laid out and mm -hmm. look really great from above. Mm -hmm. But they, but how how are people going to use it and do they want it? And you know, is it really going to be a thing that works? You know, yeah. is it going to feel like mm -hmm. home? To people? Is it going to be a place where things are going to happen? And is there a plan or a budget for priming the pump a little bit and actually having some things happen? Huh. You know? Yeah start out with paying some musicians to be playing uh, outside so you can sit and listen to them until it gets to the point where that stuff starts to happen naturally and you can just <laughs> open up your guitar case and people throw dollars in. Cool, cool. Pete, any, uh, any final thoughts? No, I just, I, I think this is amazing. I, I'd love to hear if you've heard, you know, one thing we're having in my, I, I'm from suburban DC, which kind of is, the opposite end of the spectrum of <laughs> places because it has the problem where it's already been way too gentrified and it's already been way too um, 
it's becoming it's it's running the risk of being like a gated playland for uh, a, a small swath of the population and mm-hmm. we're starting to see corporate developers you know i was looking at the better block uh the images as you were talking we're starting to see corporate developers take all of these uh ideas and building these like corporate real estate playlands that have all these best practices and have like the little festival. <laughs> and I was at the city <laughs> council meeting about it. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. I was at the city council meeting about new one coming. It's called uh, little city commons, but it's completely going to be privately owned. Right. Um, and I said, well, are we going to be allowed to have a protest there? If you're saying it's a commons and huh. they said, well, you'd have to get your protest permit approved by the private entity. <laughs> <laughs> and right. I love that your spirit is that you're keeping, you have a section on your website about keeping this in the public's hands and you're trying your best to avoid the trap of improving a community by displacing people. And I'd love to hear about how you're keeping these improvements owned uh, by the people and the neighborhood itself, because you seem to be very focused on that. Yeah. I mean, I think even though this, this term has all kinds of, of different weird connotations to it now, I mean, this is an idea I'm, we're really interested in, in sort of a utopian vision where you're trying to do the best thing you can in a society. So hmm. how can you strive for utopia? You, it's not, it, it hasn't ever worked out, but why not try? Why not dream? And why not cool. take a step? towards making it uh, as be- as good as you can for everybody. Um, and so, yeah, so the controlling of the property is a big part of it and man- managing it in a way that is very much based on empathy and on what is it that other people want versus, or what do they need and how, what ideas do they have that we haven't even thought of. And so, that's keeping it open. And so when, cause we're calling our project down here commons too. I mean the commons and, and there's a whole project now that's, that's going on around the country in certain cities that's funded by the Knight foundation. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, that's called reimagining the civic commons. And yeah. I, and I find that really inspiring because that's where we're really. And then if you look at this, uh, Eric Kleinberg book, it's about social infrastructure. You're where you're really seeing a gap in our in challenges in American society, which we did not see when we were in Europe. There were so many ways that people mm-hmm. were together out in public space and on and together in public transit. People are in their bubbles, not only in terms of ideology and philosophy and stuff like that, but in terms of physical life. Mm-hmm. They're too often in a bubble, a car bubble, get out in your garage and walk into your house bubble, go into your parking garage at work and go into your office bubble. And then it's, and now you don't even have to, you can order things online to get and have them delivered to your house. So you don't have to go and Mm -hmm. encounter people at at shops or whatever. So you're in, so the bubble gets really to be a problem. And so in the end, how can you create places that are more appealing and create programming that's more appealing than the safety and the comfort of the bubble. And that's what we're competing with in, wow. in this, in this mm-hmm. work. Mm-hmm. And that's why it can't, if, if this place that you're making doesn't have a bathroom, a restroom for people that's, that's available and comfortable, you don't have um, 
a place for people to feel they're going to be too hot to be there. It's very tempting to just stay in your car, go home, mm-hmm. go watch Netflix for five hours and fall asleep. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I understand. I don't blame. <clears throat> so what we have to do is make the alternative what and design it around what people really want. And that's where the utopia is, is that it's a, it's a thing that people want. You can't, and that's where utopias always fail is forcing things on people that they don't want. That's cool. not anybody's vision for, <clears throat> yeah. for a great society. You, you can't I, force it. I love this idea that our uh, civics is, uh, and the commons is great uh, competitor is Netflix. And if we can, yeah. if we yeah. can get better yeah. than Netflix, we win. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hard, hard wall to, to <clears throat> climb, but we can do it. Yeah, I mean, you just have to make make it so. And people, what still does beat um, going home and not seeing anybody is people like to go out and go to to get a drink after work or go out to eat. There are people; those things are not going to go away. So, food and drink, the socialization that comes from hanging out at a bar or a club, that stuff has not ended. Like that's still hugely popular, and neighborhoods like Fountain Square. They're, they're full of, of these kinds of things that people want. So how can we make our public spaces and our art spaces and our museums feel like that to people? Not a, just a place to go get drunk, but feel fun and feel engaging yeah. and welcoming and make it, it, you feel like when you walk in the door that you're at a, a, a party or you're at a um, friend's house, you know? That's great. That's great. Jim, you're a magician. I Appreciate can't wait to uh, connect again. When, you, when you're up in the region up here, let me know. We'll get together. Yeah. It's great to have you. It's amazing work. You know, it feels like it's, there's some commonality between what you, Chuck Marone, the guys at the Incremental Development Alliance. There's a real kind of bottom-up development philosophy that overlaps, it seems like, in a lot of really great ways. And I'm just trying to wrap my own head around it. But uh, you, you guys are really pushing it. Something I just have not seen anywhere else. Great stuff. Well, I appreciate it. And everybody's always welcome to come. We're open here 9 to 6, Monday through Friday, and 11 to 3 on Saturdays, the Tube Factory. And people can come. We'll give them a tour. Um, you could also – we have a radio station that oh, is yeah. – 99.1 WQRT and that's at WQRT.org and you can people who like listening uh, to uh, to podcasts might like listen just streaming the station uh, it features music and conversations about design and art and community um, wow. and that's based on this block too so we the studio is here and so if anybody wants to come and visit and check out any of the, the stuff uh, houses and exhibits and 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 meet us they're always welcome to to visit fantastic I'd love to have you guys down soon too that'd be great love to do it keep up the good fight thank you you too thank you jim <laughs>